Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Henry Grabar, filling in this week for April. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Friday, June 14th. On today's show, we'll talk about Zillow's plans to buy tens of thousands of houses. Then I'll talk to analyst Horace Dedu about the smaller forms of transportation that are popping up in cities all over the U.S. and the world. Things like scooters and bike share programs that contribute to what Dedu calls micromobility. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things I saw on the web this week. We're going to talk about Louisiana's disappearing coastline. That's all coming up on If Then. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at What the hell is going on with Zillow? Today, we're going to talk about how tech companies are trying to disrupt the housing market. It's a kind of a white whale because it's a gigantic, gigantic industry where much money is exchanged every year and everything is basically done as it was 40 years ago. Zillow is trying to change that. But first, you know Zillow, right? It's the website of real estate listings where you go to fantasize about living in some other city or stalk your colleagues and figure out how much they paid for their apartments or just look at you know vacation homes it might be uh, nice to one day own if you win the lottery. So Zillow has been doing that for about 10 years. It is an advertiser-driven business model where they make money um, from brokers who are trying to sell houses, and uh, that works really, really well for them. They make about $300 million a quarter in revenue. Everything's going great up until last year, and then they decided all of a sudden to change their entire business model. And here was Zillow's idea. Instead of just advertising houses on our website, we're going to buy them and sell them, which is a pretty radical shift. In addition to being a totally different thing than running a listing service, this also in some ways conflicts with the way they've made their money for a long time. They've made their money from brokers. If Zillow is the one buying your house, then when you sell your house, you don't need a broker anymore. You can just go straight to Zillow. So some people see these uh, two goals that the company has as being in conflict. After they announced they were doing this last year, the stock dropped, they switched CEOs, Nobody was really sure what was going on with Zillow. The new CEO has been out here talking about this model. He seems very confident that this is something people want. He said it is like advertising free beer at a college party. I do think that this makes sense, right? You've got a number of startups that have shown that it works. You've got Opendoor, which sold 11,000 houses last year. Opendoor will buy your house sight unseen in a city like Dallas and find a buyer for it. Not your problem which is great. If you need to move out of your house in a hurry, say you got a job transfer, need to get out of town, want to move somewhere, Open Door will just take care of it. And obviously a lot of people see a lot of potential in that model because they are selling their houses to Open Door and Open Door is finding buyers. One concern here is that the companies have to hold on to the properties for a long time. If there's a recession, all the properties drop in value, 
what are they going to do then? They're going to be stuck holding 30,000 houses. But that's their problem. From our perspective, I'm curious about how this is going to change the way people buy and sell houses. It's obviously an advantage to be able to sell a house in a moment. Buyers may find it slightly less advantageous, although I would argue that actually the big innovation here is not that Zillow is changing the technical way of buying and selling a house. It's not so much about the fact that this is going to happen on the internet, that it's going to happen through a company rather than going directly to the seller. That process of you know inserting a corporate middleman here is definitely a big change, but I would say the bigger change is that we have a middleman that's going to be enormous. I mean, Zillow is looking to get $20 billion in revenue off this within three to five years. They're aiming at 1% of the entire U.S. housing market, which means that if you're changing houses, if you want to sell a house somewhere and buy a house somewhere else, Zillow is going to have all this selection. You're going to be able to punch in your attributes And Zillow is not only going to be able to find you a house, which a smart broker might be able to do, but they'll also be able to sell yours. And they'll be able to link up your buying price and your selling price. They'll be able to link up your closing dates. And they'll offer enough centralization and scale that if you're a seller, you'll go there because you'll find a ton of buyers. And if you're a buyer, you'll go there because you'll find a ton of homes for sale. And it seems to me that that is the big innovation here, not so much the actual mechanics of how the house is sold, but the fact that you have this middleman that controls such a large share of the market across cities. So, is Zillow about to change the housing market forever? Well, maybe, but it depends where you live. Here's something interesting about Zillow's model and Open Door's model and the other companies that are going after this. They're all going at it in Sunbelt metros. And they say that's because the housing stock is newer, it's cheaper, and it's relatively self-similar. Now, those are all attributes that you will not find if you go to, say, Boston, and you've got triple-deckers, and you've got apartments, and you've got 19th-century brownstones, and you've got suburban houses with two-car garages. And making it all work with that kind of portfolio, I think, is going to be challenging, right? Because the whole added value here is that they're going to buy your house in four hours, and that becomes a lot more difficult when you're dealing with that kind of diversity in the housing stock. And in this, I see an analogy to driverless cars, which have obviously made incredible progress in places like Phoenix, where Waymo has this pilot taxi program on the roads, but still seem to struggle mightily with rain and snow. So I think it could be decades uh, between seeing this kind of tech rolled out in a place like uh, Phoenix or Dallas, and when you see it come to a place like Pittsburgh or Seattle or, or, you know, Buffalo, New York or something like that. So this big innovation in housing might be similar to this big innovation in transportation in that we're going to see it arrive some places way before it arrives other places. Up next, I'll talk to analyst Horace Dedu about scooters, bike share programs, and other small forms of transportation, which he calls micro-mobility. That's coming up after the break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For today's interview segment, we're going to be talking with Horace Dedu, who's an analyst who studies micromobility, which is to say scooters, bicycles, tricycles, quadricycles, and every other small vehicle that you have lately seen somebody moving around on in your city. I'm recording this from New York. We don't have scooters, so I feel a bit like I'm living in the Stone Age here. But as I understand it, in many American cities, people are scootering everywhere. So we're going to talk to Horace about that. In addition to being an analyst, he is renowned as the person who coined the term micromobility to apply to these new modes, which he thinks have a lot of potential. So without further ado, we'll talk to Horace about this. Hello? Hi, Horace. This is Henry from Slate. Well, hey, hi, Henry. Thanks for calling. So we've spoken about this before, and you you talked about the analogy between what's happening now in transportation and what happened in computing. Can you explain what you mean by that, this analogy to microcomputing? So I'm old enough to have been around when microcomputing was something that was new. And the idea of a microcomputer was something that was smaller than a mini computer. And a mini computer was smaller than a regular computer. Now, the regular computer was what came to be known as a mainframe, and then the mini-computer was something more like the size of a closet or, or maybe a washing machine. And then we had this microcomputer that was size big enough to fit on the desk. A lot of the characteristics of these early computers or PC, early PC, were, were that they were, they were very low-end. They just couldn't do a lot of powerful things. The very first microprocessor was only four bits, and then again, we had an eight-bit, and 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 so on. Well, mainframes were were able to do you know giant giant uh, batch jobs that could keep a corporation running smoothly, and 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 there were just thousands of potential simultaneous users on these machines. Mm-hmm. So here was a, a very low end product. So it's kind of like saying that um, despite being smaller and less powerful, these new devices that are getting rolled out may actually fill a need and provide exactly as much power as is necessary for that need. Exactly. So so the way I segment the market for micromobility is by breaking up the demand for certain distances of travel. So if you can, you know, we, we often say that micromobility is about the first mile or the first or last mile of a journey uh, because you assume that something else is being used for the longer parts of that journey. But in fact, one-mile journeys are very, very common, and they stand alone as separate journeys. Uh, we don't actually uh, very often travel 40 miles. We don't travel, uh, as you can look at the average distances that cars are used for, and they're like three to four miles, which is the most common distance. So it's it's actually an interesting question then to look at at the demand for transportation and trips and say, well, there's a low end, and then there's a high end, and the low end are short trips, and the high end is is are long trips. And then you 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 add up how many short trips there are, and say, can we offer something there that isn't a car? And then you suddenly say, wow, if you did, 
a lot of people will use it. And that's what we're seeing now as the experiments going on with micromobility. So in many ways, and if I may go back to my metaphor or my, my analogy, it was a microcomputer that was used for things that the mainframe was somewhat couldn't be bothered to do, things like spreadsheets or things like you know personal data sets and things that you might do that you didn't want to bother you know a big computer with. And those little jobs ended up getting... Uh, more and more sophisticated and so so word processing was another little job you didn't want to use a mainframe for that you might use a typewriter but you, you know to to do word processing and then spreadsheets and then presentations were not things that the big computers were good for and so you ended up finding these niches and then expanding those niches and then suddenly this is the biggest the most important computer in your life and now the question is can the little device the little scooter the little bike get improve over time rapidly improve over time and take on more and more jobs to be done if you will mm -hmm. you know it th doesn't do shopping well it doesn't do transporting other kids around or or doing uh, a long distance commute those are certainly not within its scope but someday it might because you can just watch how quickly it evolves just how quickly these things get upgraded and new technologies added to them that's what you should keep an eye on not what they are able to be today. They're just baby products today. They're going to grow up. Right. One important difference between mainframe computers and vehicles is that in the 1980s, virtually no one had a mainframe computer, whereas now, um, in the United States at least, uh, most households have a car. So mm -hmm. what does micromobility need to offer or, or maybe – what restrictions does government need to place on car use um, for these right. devices to actually prove advantageous over using a vehicle um, as opposed to just being a kind of uh, whimsical and fun way to get around, which I think is the way people are thinking yeah. of them now? Well, yes. Well, I think in, in, in the sense the car is already under a lot of pressure and it's going to increase. I don't, I'm not for the idea that we need to ban cars, I, not, not at all. I think the car serves a great purpose in, in society, but it increasingly a very awkward presence in the city because the city um, in, in general, when you, when you look at it, and the, the, all that beautiful, very valuable real estate is being taken up by these, these machines, which are very big for, for the job they do. And that, that's really why I think the economics of automobiles in cities are so poor that generally people will want to say, "Let's we're better off if we switch away from cars, economically speaking, right? And, and, and a calculation I make to, to make that clear is just to add up all the parking spaces that are in cities and asking, what would that real estate be worth? The parking real estate in a major U.S. city is worth trillions of dollars. It's not now been given almost for free to cars because we think that they're a necessary uh, enabler for commerce and other things. But it, in fact, if, if you find a, even a modest alternative, that real estate is just going to be so attractive for people to redevelop. And once, and the way I put it is the way parking goes is the way the car goes. If you take away the parking, you take away the car because the car sits for 96% of the time. It doesn't get used. So if you don't have a place to put it, you can't have it. That, that that's a remarkable calculation and so i'm saying only that economics will play a role here cities need to maybe stop offering free parking and stop 
subsidizing parking by saying that every establishment has to have a certain number of parking spots. That's true in the U.S. It's not true in Europe. In fact, increasingly in Europe, the uh, maximum number of car parking for any establishment is zero. So you cannot have parking by default. Right. So that creates a huge incentive to try and find ways to get around that don't involve the automobile with respect to the um, specific tools, um, for a while when this trend first came on the scene, it came to my attention and I think many other people's attention via the rise of these dockless bike share startups in China. Um, and, and those companies then spread their model to cities in Europe and the United States. And, and there were imitators who developed parallel systems where they dropped all these bikes off in the streets of cities like Seattle and Dallas. Those are all almost gone now from American cities yep. and, it, and have been replaced by scooters. What do you make of, of that model shift? Is this just part of the hiccups of a, a new technology coming on the scene? Or was there a, a real flaw in, in that rollout there? Well, the, the, there are there are several levels here. One of the one of the remarkable things of the 21st century is how much capital we seem to be willing to invest in new ideas. And when when a new idea even has a, a slight chance of succeeding, people spend you know overinvest in it. And so we really had billions of dollars going into bike sharing, which actually I think was a mistake because it, it wasn't tested enough, it wasn't refined enough, and yet so much capital went into it so quickly that it ended up forcing those entrepreneurs to deploy the solution without iteration. So they have, if you if you gave somebody $500 million and says replicate this everywhere, what else are you going to do? You're not going to say, well, I'm only going to spend five now and then I'll do a couple of versions here to see what really works. Maybe I'll, I'll do an e-bike version and I'll try to figure out maybe something like a scooter. No, 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 they had to spend all that money in six months putting these bikes everywhere. And as a result, they really got a lot of uh, created a lot of pollution and, and a lot of problems with all these excess vehicles everywhere. And, and that's what ended up killing the, the, the industry, even though maybe had it gone a different way, maybe those early Chinese bike sharing companies would have moved into scooters. As it happens, the scooter idea just got, got transplanted or got born elsewhere in the United States, actually. So electrification was always going to come to the bike. It's just, I think, the China story was just that too much, too fast in one model that didn't really evolve rapidly enough. Mm -hmm. One problem in, in the United States, at least, and I think this has been true elsewhere, too, is that there's, um, whether through explicit vandalism or just through wear and tear, these vehicles don't seem to last that long. So um, my former colleague, Ali Griswold at Quartz, did an analysis of um, bird scooter usage in Louisville, and she found that the average lifespan of a scooter there was 28.8 days. Mm -hmm. Now, McKinsey, in their analysis of micromobility, they estimate that it takes 114 days of use for a scooter to pay off for the company that has bought yep. it. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot, 114 days. I guess this is why there's $2 billion invested in, in bird. It seems like it wouldn't be that hard to have a scooter on the street for three and a half months. But um, the data from Louisville demonstrates that maybe that's a little more difficult than these companies had anticipated. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think that they did not develop the product well enough. And I think they, they learned that lesson and are now on the third version of that initial product. 
initially the logic was let's just get off the shelf scooters, which were made by uh, Chinese companies for consumers initially. Let's adapt those in a minimal way to put them on the street. And those were not rugged. They were not reliable. They were not designed for fleet use. They're also very unsafe and sort of sketchy and many other design issues. Um, and so what Bird did was iterate. But the, the, the logic here is that these companies that began as, again, using the old metaphor of the mobile industry, um, if they began as, as Verizon, they're starting to figure out that, oh, wow, we, we got to build an iPhone as well. So the vehicle is the thing that actually people most relate to. And that vehicle needs to be really beautifully designed and engineered. And so the, the work that's going to be needed there, again, version one, we're probably in the phone ba basis right now, we're probably looking at, you know, the original maybe brick phones and maybe a little bit of a, a Motorola flip phone Gen 1 kind of plastic thing. So we're, we're, pl we're playing Snake and, and we just don't, we just can't even conceptualize the Angry Birds that is to come. Or or the iPhone indeed. One of the criticisms, if I may you know, suggest here is that that um, some people say that transportation does not follow Moore's law. And Moore's law is what made all the PCs and mobile industries take off, right? What's Moore's law? So Moore's law is that every 18 months, uh, the the density of microprocessors on the on a on a integrated circuit doubles, and this is named after Jeffrey Moore at Intel back I think in the 60s when he observed this, or maybe 70s. But it was it was like you have this inc exponential increase in the in the power of a microprocessor as a result. Truly exponential means literally doubling every few years. Now there's no Moore's law in cars. So cars don't double in performance every two years. They certainly you know, hardly double every century. Um, the question is, if if you want to see exponential growth and, and the kind of growth that I'm talking about in computing and in telephony to come to, to transportation and mobility, can we hook on to something that goes up as a rocket? You know, can we, can we latch ourselves to something that's so powerful? That is the existential question for the whole industry, because otherwise... It's just a nice-to-have toy, or it's a nice-to-have extension to our infrastructure that we already have. But it, it sort of doesn't change the world. It, 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 it'll make it better, but it won't, it won't replace the car, reduce carbon emissions, or reverse uh, climate change. But if it does, if, if this becomes a Moore's Law type of uh, technology, then making transportation obey Moore's law implies it's going to grow to billions of users. It's going to grow to to taking most of the consumption out of the car into something else. So that's what does that look like? I mean, can you like if, if you're in um, if you, one of the European cities there where it seems like, you know, the cars are being taken off the street the fastest. What does your best case scenario for this technology look like? five, 10 years down the road. So this is the exciting thing is also, again, back to the PCs that it did stand alone. There were other machines that people use simultaneously and they connected them up in networks and did all kinds of other things. Therefore, my, my vision for micro mobility isn't that these are standalone scooters that are competing with other scooters and maybe with car sharing at once in a while, is that we lo we're looking at a, at a much more integrated transportation network and that trips and, and what people need to do is done through a collaborative fashion, meaning sometimes the word um, multimodality is used or multimodes, right? You travel with two different, you know, you take a car and a train to complete your journey. 
another way to think about it is trip chaining. You do one trip and then another trip after that. And the, the idea is that you might use multiple modes to get your job done. So what I envision is that we're going to have a multimodal future where there's collaboration between multiple modes. And it'll be not just micro modes, but also macro modes or auto modes together with transit. And so that, that requires connectivity between modes and a lot of collaboration between uh, these these companies. And it might seem like that's like Tower of Babel stuff, very complicated to organize and synchronize. But we we got through that with computers very pretty pretty quickly uh, when we built the internet. So the the idea is uh, I call it tokenization. Is that the idea of a journey becomes becomes something that you, is, is negotiated between multiple providers and they're bidding to serve you. And um, and so you you would you would complete your journey through this kind of seamless integration between multiple modes. So it doesn't mean excluding the car, but it probably means reducing the car to you know twenty percent of its current usage. A lot more public transit, a lot more certainly micro mobility, and a lot more types of micro mobility. So we'll have scooters, two wheels, uh, two big wheels, two small wheels, all kinds of different configurations, three wheels and four wheels as well. For these types of very lightweight vehicles, do, do cities need to make large-scale infrastructural adjustments to make this kind of technology catch on? So the beautiful thing about micromobility is that it sits very well on top of road infrastructure already existing, bridges and all kinds of other things that are built for the car. In fact, when you when you think about it, the car infrastructure is overbuilt for the type of vehicle we, we're looking at. All it needs is space allocation. It initially just needs some some bandwidth, if you will. It's like it's actually much cheaper. It's ten percent cheaper to build infrastructure for bikes than it is for for cars. It must and be more. It must are, be more than ten percent cheaper, right? Or ten percent of the cost. It, it, no, no, I'm sorry. It's 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 ten percent of that. So it's ninety percent cheaper. Right. Yeah. So. It, your vision of what happens next with micromobility obviously is a variety of different vehicle types. Um, how certain are you that all these types are going to be electrified? How electrified is the future of these small vehicles? Well, I believe that uh, the best experiences are those where the human or the rider actually does some activity in order to, to make the vehicle move. So in other words, the, the pedal electric concept or e-bikes where you pedal and then they amplify your your exertion i envision that we'll see a bunch of experiments both with uh with uh throttle systems including sit down stand up um two wheels three wheels and then we're going to have active systems which are uh, you know again pedal electric and and those could also be configured in a sit down configuration more a laid back configuration or or recumbent uh, positions and so on. And all of these are being worked on. And we know that Uber and Lyft, the bulk of whose business consists of giving people cab rides around cities and vehicles, have also gotten invested in these kind of outfits. Uber with um, Jump, uh, Lyft with uh, Motivate, which runs City Bike, the bike share program in New York. What do you make of, of those companies trying to diversify the way they get people around? Well, it makes a lot of sense because even before them, Didi, which is a taxi share in China, invested in Ofa, which was the bike sharing in China. And the the idea back, back then was that they could see in their data, and Uber does the same thing, they see in their data that most people go for short trips. So they'll go one mile to two miles very, very frequently, like, you know, 10, 20% of the trips 
they're very short. And they also know that the economics of providing a car for those distances as a shared vehicle are very poor. So the drivers hate short trips. They have to go from five miles away to pick up a ride and then drop them a few bucks further down. And they have to go a few miles again to pick somebody else up. So the, the, what they're called the deadhead miles, the number of miles driven without a passenger for short trips are just horrendous. Everybody would rather do the airport trip where you get a, a longer trip in and you get a lot more money. So the, the economics for short trips are awful for, for car sharing, for both the, the, the driver and for Uber. And well, particularly for the for the driver because they have all this uh, wasted time. But uh, as a result, they said, "Hey, if we can give the short distance to this other mode that we can control and monetize as well, then we can actually free up the driver to do other things, which are longer distance." And the economics is it's a win win for everybody. I think that uh, these these are not vision. These three companies that invested in micro mobility, they were in the car sharing business. These are not about having a vision. They just understood the, their own economics and they said, this makes perfect sense. How do we jump in? Uh, and what's interesting is from the strategic point of view, they just weren't scared of this. This wasn't that they didn't have an allergic reaction to micro mobility and say, hey, hey, we we are hands free. You know, we don't touch any of the vehicles. We don't touch any of the services directly. We're just market makers. We bring this the customer and the and the driver together in this case no you got to do everything yourself look at jump acquired by uber they have to design their own vehicles they have to operate their own fleet they have to go out there and fix the vehicles in the field they have to deal with cities and governments all of that is really a dirty business compared to the traditional car share and they weren't afraid to do it great thanks so much for coming on appreciate it hey no problem One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. The best thing I read this week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. I'm going to do something unorthodox and pick a story that I read in the print issue of The New Yorker. The issue is from March 25th, but I would like to say that a two-month-old issue of The New Yorker is, in some respects, the analog version of a tab that's been sitting on your desktop unused for four days. This article is called Louisiana's Disappearing Coast, and the idea is pretty simple. The Mississippi River carries a ton of sediment and soil down from the Midwest. For millions of years, this soil has spread via flooding and built up the Gulf Coast of the United States. All of Louisiana is basically built of soil from the Midwest. In the last hundred years or so, we have been so determined to funnel the Mississippi into a very small channel 
so that it stops flooding all the communities that are set up on its banks, that all this sediment is getting dropped off the continental shelf into the Gulf of Mexico. As a result, Louisiana's coastline is disappearing at the rate of one football field every hour and a half. The famous boot outline is in tatters. In this article, Elizabeth Colbert goes to New Orleans and she talks to the engineers that are trying to find a solution for this. How do we free the Mississippi River from its channel without destroying all the communities that have been set up on its banks? It's pretty interesting. And that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com, send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Henry Grabar. Thanks again to our guest, Horace Dedu. You can follow him on Twitter at A-S-Y-M-C-O, Asimco. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. We'll see you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.